This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. On the first day Ontario's Fixing Long-Term Care Act came into effect, Libby was joined by our Monday Zoomer squad. But will it fix the relationship between nursing homes and family caregivers who have been officially recognized for the first time? To answer this question and offer their thoughts, here are Peter Mugrich, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine, Bill Van Gorder, Chief Policy Officer and Chief Operating Officer at CARP, and David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. The Act doesn't appear to contain a mechanism for that kind of dialogue and, if necessary, arbitration. So you're left with, yeah, we recognize the patients and their families have rights. On the other hand, we hear a lot about, and we've talked about it on this program, shortage of PSW, shortage of workers, impossible conditions, not enough pay, um, not enough resources to do the job well. So you have this arena where a lot of uh, intense feelings can exist and you don't have a mechanism for getting everybody to the table to talk about. I think that's the deficiency. I don't think there's any way of avoiding some conflict in these kinds of situations. It's just a law of averages. You get enough people. But what's the um, system for airing it in a respectful way and dealing with it? And that appears to be like these people that got banned have no uh, recourse. They have no right of appeal well, to any anybody. Bill, I mean, is that would that solve it? Having recourse, having some kind of, I don't know, arbiter, ombudsperson. Well, it 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 might, but that would be after the fact. Over and over, Carp uh, has has heard these stories that just are based on poor communication between the homes and the families and and the uh their their residents and uh there we can understand that uh, uh low low staffing uh levels and uh, uh interpretation of of government rules sometimes lead to uh, to disagreements but uh, the communication has been uh, has been poor and once again going back to our traditional medical model that we have to get get over and get past and that is that the system says this is uh, this is what's going on this is the problem this is how you should fix it now go do do this one way communication from the top historically that's the way the system has worked until until everyone agrees that it has to be two way there has to be discussion that decisions have to be made with families and patients not just for them we're going to continue to have this kind of uh this kind of problem and 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 this this new government uh, uh rules of the coming in effect now have done nothing to improve the uh, uh communication or the the uh, reasons that the poor communication happens in the first place peter as a family member you know you don't want your loved one to not have the top care that 
you know, that can be offered. And, and if you see any, any sort of indication that he or she isn't getting the top kind of care, then there's going to be friction and there's going to be emotions. And in the case of the Star article where, where you know, it, it seems to have escalated to a point where, you know, the, the woman's not even allowed to see her her family member in in uh, in certain areas of the home, and she can't talk to uh, caregivers, and that that's escalated to a point where something it, it can't be solved at a human level, and it doesn't look like it, there's there's legal uh, recourse. So maybe at this point th- there could be an, a, a higher arbitrator called in to solve it. But uh, I think these th- those kind of cases are very rare, and that you know families and staff. I, I know in our case we often sort of you know. We had we had issues, but we solved them. And um, you know, there there is there is you, you can work with with these homes, and 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 I I don't know what a um, you know what what an ombudsman would do, or, or like how it would help you know the immediate situation on the ground level. Peter Mugridge, senior editor at Zoomer magazine. Bill Van Gorder, chief policy officer and chief operating officer at CARP. And David Kravitz, chief membership officer at CARP and vice president at Zoomer Media. Fight Back's Monday Zoomer Squad. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Monday was also World Parkinson's Day. Some 100,000 Canadians live with this disease, which causes tremors, slowness in movements, muscle stiffness, and balance problems and cognitive impairment in the end stages. It's a progressive degenerative disease that worsens over time, and the average age at diagnosis is 60. But there are ways to manage and improve the symptoms. Libby was joined by Dr. Karen Lee, President and CEO of Parkinson's Canada. Our main message uh, on World Parkinson's Day and really through the whole Awareness Month is that we're your partners in Parkinson's. We're here to support you in every step of the way. It's never too late to come forward, ask a question. We're here to support you. Okay, so a uh, hundred thousand Canadians. That's correct. There's a hundred thousand Canadians who live with Parkinson's. Um, unfortunately, that number will double in the next ten years. Um, it is one of the fastest growing neurological conditions in the world, and we really need to figure out why. Is it uh, simply because of the aging of the population? Is age a big risk factor? You go, yep, it is. Uh, unfortunately, aging is a big risk factor, as well as exposures to pesticides. Um, and as well as there's a genetic component. Not everybody has a genetic component, but um, for sure, um, if you have it in your family, there may be a higher chance that you may get Parkinson's. With most diseases, if you catch it early and start some kind of treatment early, what should people do uh, if they or a loved one are first diagnosed? For sure. I think the earlier you can detect, um, the better. Um, unfortunately, in terms of research, that's an area that we are really pushing on as a, as a community worldwide, is how do we detect earlier for people living with Parkinson's? It does take, take some time right now. Um, a doctor, and specifically a movement disorder specialist, needs to really look at your history to understand what has happened. And sometimes it can take a couple of years. But that being said, when they do diagnose, 
Um, there's many things that can be done. Um, one, there are some treatments that are currently available that do help people um, with the movement coordination, that tremor we talk about that is so familiar with Parkinson's. Um, at the same time, there's a lot of work that's being done in rehabilitation and the push for wellness. So exercise, um, nutrition um, are really a, a big component of living with Parkinson's disease that can really help your quality of life. So uh, what are some of those treatments when you're first diagnosed? So one of the main ones that has been around for many years is levodopa. Um, it really replaces what um, is known as dopamine that is lost in uh, the brain uh, for people living with Parkinson's, and that really does help with the tremors and rigidity. However, one of the things that I think we should be most hopeful and excited about in the next five to 10 years is that there will be new treatments coming through, and they're going to be called disease-modifying therapies. These are the therapies that are so critical to either slow down the disease and hopefully stop the disease progression that we're talking about. Now, Parkinson's itself is is not fatal, but it it makes uh, people very susceptible to some things, correct? Yeah, so um, I wouldn't say that you would die from Parkinson's disease, but once again, uh, as we talk about all the other uh, comorbidities that do come with it, um, at the same time, there's a lot that isn't discussed, which is the non-motor symptoms. Um, so people do, will have bladder issues, and we talked about earlier on, I think you mentioned cognition, of course. What's so interesting about Parkinson's disease is everybody's journey is so different. You have people who are diagnosed um, as the, um, you know, in that range from 60 to 70, um, and it's a slow progression. At the same time, you have people uh, I've heard as early as 30 years old or younger that are being diagnosed, and their progression can be quicker or slower. And this is why um, understanding the disease, providing different types of treatments are so critical because not one treatment is going to be good for everybody. So I can't say for sure that cognition, there's a time frame. Some people might see it within a year. Uh, some won't see it for a while. Um, but really, it is a very personal journey. At the same time, uh, we want to ensure at Parkinson Canada, we're supporting everyone with the right resources so they understand and can be prepared. Or at the same time, look at opportunities that might elevate or help them feel that they can continue to thrive. Dr. Karen Lee, President and CEO, Parkinson's Canada. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, how will COVID's sixth wave and the decision to lift the masking mandate affect the outcome of the upcoming provincial election? We will discuss next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It was acknowledged this past week by Ontario's chief medical officer that we are indeed in a sixth wave of COVID-19 with no plans right now to reinstate the mask mandate. With just a month and a half until the provincial election, Fightback's Tuesday strategy panel discussed whether these developments might have a negative impact on Premier Doug Ford's re-election chances. Libby was joined by John Capobianco, conservative strategist, senior vice president and senior partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Bird, liberal strategist and managing principal at Earnscliff Strategies. 
uh, it's like a giant hose of cash sort of <laughs> doing a pinwheel motion from the front lawn of Queen's Park, covering nearly every part of, uh, of the province. Uh, not unprecedented in the lead-up to elections on the part of incumbent governments, um, but uh, notable given that we are expecting um, an Ontario budget in the coming weeks, probably the week of April 25th, right before the writ is dropped. And all of this, of course, is happening in the midst of a, of a sixth wave of COVID where there are very real concerns, as expressed by Dr. Moore yesterday, that we could see as many as 600 people in ICUs, which would really take us back to some of the horrible numbers we were seeing just last year. And I think it's the, it's the wild card in the election, which is to say that, you know, past Ontario elections have generally seen incumbent governments reelected for a second term. Uh, but COVID might just change the dynamic. Um, there's, you know, obviously the Ford government had some very significant problems around testing and especially around long-term care facilities. And it could be that um, if the sixth wave really does crest during the, the election campaign itself, it could have a defining impact on on uh, voter intention. Karen, these really mixed messages on mask mandates, are they thinking that if people don't have to wear masks, they'll forget that there's a big wave of COVID? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I, um, you know, my view of it is that people are, are managing their own level of risk. And the government is saying, you know, there's, there's still risk out there. If you want to manage it um, properly, you should wear a mask. But they're also now letting people make their own decisions around what level of risk they're willing to, to work with. And also combined with the fact that, you know, a lot of people have COVID and have recovered from COVID and they may not feel the same need to wear a mask. And so there's lots of things that are happening around people's understanding of uh, what it means to live with COVID and live with this variant. And um, I think that it is, to, to, be con- to be honest with you, I think people know, like, if, if I'm going into a crowded place, I should probably wear a mask. That being said, I was at the Blue Jays home opener and there were 56,000 people in the stadium, completely sold out crowd. And I would say 5% if we're wearing a mask. John, do you think this issue of masks and COVID will uh, throw a wrench into the government's election plans? I think it certainly has the potential. You know, election campaigns are so unpredictable, and, and you can go in with a significant lead, and, and it can be evaporated pretty quick. We've seen that at, at all levels, and it doesn't matter who the incumbent government is. So there, there's always some level of unpredictability, and, and of course, COVID can certainly be that that outlier that will um, uh, that will cause some problems with with respect to the incumbent government. I think the problem is is that. Um, you know, we're not seeing necessarily anything that is changing people's perception of of the of the premier and of the government with with, with, with respect to voter intention. Certainly, in the, some of the polls that we've seen, because I think in large part, you know, Stephen Del Duca does not have an answer for this. He never has, right? There's never been somebody who's been able to say to Stephen Del Duca, "What would you do differently?" You know, and yeah, you can complain and say, "Well, this wasn't done fast enough," or "We're not spending enough money on this." And you know, he was part of the government for the last 15 years that that you know led to a lot of the problems with long-term care facilities, right? And then you've got Andrew Horvath and the NDP who constantly just refuses to do anything but but just complain about stuff. And that's a, that's a problem. So, you know, people are going to say, look, we know that the Premier has had some issues with respect to some problems, but he's by and large been the, probably the most cautious Premier 
out of all the premiers across Canada with respect to opening and restrictions and even mask mandates. People are now at a stage where let me determine how best I can deal my life, knowing that the vast majority are still going to get shots and are still going to wear masks. John Capobianco, conservative strategist, senior vice president and senior partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Bird, liberal strategist and managing principal at Earnscliff Strategies. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Have you made your final arrangements yet, as in what's to be done with your body after you die? No one likes to think about their own death, but by making these decisions ahead of time, it ultimately makes the process easier for loved ones that are left behind. There is cremation, traditional burial, and an option we learned more about this past week on Fight Back, natural burial. Libby was joined by Susan Greer, Executive Director of the Natural Burial Association. Let's start by imagining a meadow no tall grass, wildflowers, walking trails, wood benches, not a tombstone in sight. That's a natural burial ground. Then at that natural burial ground, um, the deceased is uh, firstly not embalmed, and they're wrapped in a shroud or a biodegradable casket, like an unvarnished pine box or a wicker casket, and then they're lowered into the ground. They may be lowered into the ground by their friends and family. Um, and they don't go six feet down. They go three or four feet down because that's where the rich soil strata is and where the body can, you know, return nutrients to give back to the earth. And then the big thing about natural burial grounds is well, also what happens above ground. The land is restored and it's protected to its uh, natural state forever. It's always protected. Um, at a natural burial ground, there's about 300 plots per acre, which is uh, way different than a, um, conventional cemetery that has about a 1,000 plots per acre. And as far as the memorialization, there's either, it depends on the bylaws of every cemetery, but there's, gonna, there's either a low, flat, modest uh, marker, stone marker, sometimes taken right from that land, or there's a communal marker, like a big boulder that has everybody's name on it, and the idea is that you know, that your that legacy that you're leaving is all of that natural burial ground, not just the four by eight area where you are. And you can always find the family using GPS or other means. So there's no worry about if you do want to track down exactly where your loved one is. Are they legal here in Ontario? Do they exist here? Well, yeah. And this it's it's never been illegal. It's just that you know, a couple centuries ago, the industry became commercialized, right? And the and the cemeteries started to be manicured, and instead of home funerals, they moved out to funeral homes. So this is this has existed from time immemorial. Um, the natural burial. I mean, it's a little bit different now at a natural burial ground with the emphasis on uh, bringing back the nature and and restoring it to its natural ecohabitat. But um, it's always, always been legal. But you're, but you're asking the first question that people ask, really, is that legal? And it, it definitely is. If somebody decides this is what they want and they said, okay, I'm going to look for and see if there are any areas set aside in municipal cemeteries, are there? Is this something that someone could find here now or we have to wait? Yeah, the best thing is to go to our website, naturalburialassociation.ca. 
and we list what's um, the what the natural burial grounds that are available. They're all hybrids right now, but there's still some really lovely ones that follow the tenets of natural burial. And we have a list. Oh my gosh, it's probably up to a dozen of different locations where there's work. You know, there's work at play. Either there's an advocacy group that's starting off or there's something more concrete land that's been pegged somebody who wants to have a cemetery on their land and it's gone through some rounds of municipal proposals um so it's uh yeah there are different stages in ontario what would you like to leave us with on this susan you know the way that you you started the conversation saying has has anybody given what they're going to do um at their end of life any thought and it's it's a good idea it's a really good idea and for, it, it can really, I mean, of course, I, I favor natural burial, but we've met so many people. We get so many wonderful emails from people that's just saying, you know, I'm a gardener. What else can I say? Or um, this is a gift I can give future generations. So if it, you know, for the, your listeners out there, if this does sound appealing, then check out our website, how your family talk about it. And, and you start, even if it doesn't sound appealing, it's a good idea to have this conversation with those you. Know, just makes it a lot easier, as you said earlier, for the loved ones you leave behind if, if they know the wishes of the deceased. Susan Greer, Executive Director of the Natural Burial Association. There's more information online at naturalburialassociation.ca. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. Ron in Guelph phoned about the Ontario election campaign and the challenges facing the NDP leader. During the start of the pandemic, Andrea Horvath, she's come out and she's criticized and she's done all this stuff, but I haven't really heard any real concrete suggestions on what she would have done. And right now she's got her own problems with um, some of her own candidates, one in Hamilton and the other one up in uh, Brampton North. Kate in Toronto phoned about the shocking amount of food that's wasted in Canada. The more affluent you are, I think the more food gets wasted. If you are living at below the poverty line, you count every dollar of food and you make sure you use it. That's my experience. Pat in Toronto also called in on this topic. I was a board member of Second Harvest going back uh, more than 25 years ago. It's a great organization, and anything we can do to support this organization needs to be done. Uh, Gardening has become such a thing. uh, It has really taken off with the, the COVID. We should encourage young people to have what they had during the war, which were called victory gardens. This would, this would be so good if we could get people growing their own foods, which we can easily do in this climate. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. 
There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week is Bella in Oshawa who phoned as the Fixing Long-Term Care Act came into effect about her experience as a caregiver for her husband in long-term care. I just want to let you know that I have recently had my husband admitted to the brand-new Lakewood Gardens nursing home, but it was one struggle. My husband's been diagnosed for seven years. The last two years have been horrible between trying to get home care, which, you know, they tout home care as trying to keep them at home, but people wouldn't show up and different things, and I still work. I had to end up putting my husband in crisis care through the Lake Ridge Hospital in Oshawa, and finally on the 29th of March, he was admitted as a patient into that home. But I'll tell you, if you don't stay on top of everything and fight like the Dickens for your rights, you fall through the cracks. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. And call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi. With technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.